You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. Before we get underway with this week's show, a request. We are halfway through our current pledge drive week with the goal of raising $38,000 towards our annual fundraising goal, which is a minimum of $170,000. Now, this annual goal is not a random number, but the amount of money we must raise to secure an annual $70,000 contribution from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And $38,000 is a big goal. It is going to be a stretch, and that's why we're relying on our friends, and I'm relying on the friends of Speak of the arts to help us get there. KOPLN belongs to you. This is your community radio station, one of only a handful of community radio stations around the country. For the past 45 years, our goal has always been to offer radio airtime to a diverse group of voices within the community. And we want to be able to continue to share ideas, information and music with the world. We want to continue being a leading producer of multicultural community events and programming and to carry on supporting and enhancing our local non-profit community. But we cannot do it without your help. I truly love putting this show together every week. I get to disappear down research rabbit holes, read plays and books, ask behind the scenes questions, ask about people's motivations and inspirations, and then share all of that with you. Our arts community has a phenomenal depth of talent and it is such a gift that KOPN exists and gives me a chance to share it with you every week. So if you enjoy Speaking of the Arts and would like to keep this show and our other community programming on the air, do me a wee favour and call the station now on 573-874-5676 and make a donation. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be paid all at once. You can spread it out into 12 monthly instalments like I do, but every little you can give helps keep programmes like Speaking of the Arts on the air. We rely on listener support for over over 80% of our funding. So each time you give a little, it nudges us closer to another year of putting voices from your community on the air. So here's the number once again, 573-874-5676. Or you can also donate securely online at kopn.org. It would fill my little heart with joy to see the phones light up and to know that Speaking of the Arts is a show that you would like to keep listening to. And we also have a, a, a generous offer for the next five pledges that come in at $100 they will be matched by an anonymous donor. So thank you very much to our anonymous donor. If you would like to make a donation of $100, it will be matched. I hear the phones ringing. Thank you. So on today's show, we are steeped in the world of theatre. Later in the show, I'll be chatting to Greenhouse Theatre Project's Executive Director, Elizabeth Brown Palmieri, about their upcoming Living Room One Act plays. But first, we take a step back in time to find out more about one of the most influential plays in the history of theatre. Samuel Beckett's tragic comedy in two acts, Waiting for Godot. And joining me in the studio is the University of Missouri Curator's Distinguished Teaching Professor 
Professor and Director of the Centre for Applied Theatre and Drama Research, Dr. Suzanne Burgoyne. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. I'm delighted to be here. It's your first time with me, I think, isn't it? I think it is, Diane. Well, I hope it isn't the last. I hope not either. (laughs) Now, it is not often that a play's setting is one of its most quoted lines, but a country road, a tree evening is a hallmark of Beckett's Waiting for Godot. The play represents a watershed moment in 20th century theatre and liberated many playwrights who came later. Yet the play's four principal characters don't have any plot to move along and the play ambles repetitiously to no obvious dramatic point. To quote the writer Chris Power, the first step towards engaging with the play is accepting that it won't supply solutions to its mysteries. <laughs> That's true. In fact, uh, some critics have talked about Beckett as being the playwright of uncertainty. <laughs> so give us the dramaturg's overview of Waiting for Godot. Well, you can talk about it as um, two tramps are waiting for someone to come along and give their lives meaning, which is kind of how I see it. Um, it was one of those plays that was originally given the title Absurdism, or the category Absurdism, by Martin Eslin when he wrote his book Theater of the Absurd. But the absurdist playwrights, or those people he called absurdist playwrights, they didn't see themselves as absurdist playwrights, so they didn't name themselves. It was just one of those things. Um, I can give you the plot or non-plot, or I can give you all sorts of things. Um, My interpretation of it, or my central production metaphor, is a surrealistic whirlpool of stillness, sucking us into the silence of the void. A whirlpool of stillness. Yes, Yes, There's lots of oxymorons going to be... Well, surrealism, (laughs) right? Right, right. So give us a summary of the circular journey the play takes us on, and the play's principal characters. Well, the two tramps are Didi and Gogo, or Vladimir and Estragon, and they have been together for 50-some years, Um, but now they are trying to find someone who will take care of them, I think, and they believe that Godot, whom at least one of them has met, we think, um, and that's sort of the way the play goes. Well, we think, or we sort (laughs) of remember, or we can't be certain that, right, it keeps contradicting itself, and they keep contradicting themselves. Anyway, those are the two main characters, and they are supposed to meet with Godot. They're waiting for him every night, every evening, before the sun goes down and the moon comes up. And we see day one in Act One, or the first day we see is Act One, and the second day we see is Act Two, and it pretty much starts and ends more or less the same way. So when the play opened in Paris in 1953 and then in London in 1955, both productions received similar reactions. Audiences were confused, irritated, bored, derisive and hostile enough that often they just walked out at halftime or Mm -hmm. intermission. Some critics thought it was bewildering, but one or two saw it as a perfect work that deserved a triumph. So what what do you love about it? Well, I'll tell you what I love about it. Um, the first time I saw it, it was the first year of my marriage. And I had just read it and gone, I do not understand this. This is weird. Um, but when I saw a live production, it really drew me in. And I began to see, this is a picture of my marriage. There are these two people who care deeply about each other, but they cannot communicate. And they cannot give the other person what the other person most needs. 
And that seemed to me very much like my marriage. That, carry That's, on. <laughs> well, the, the thing is that each person sees in the play what, what they are dealing with, I think, because it's very archetypal, it's very universal, um, it's not contemporary in the sense that, oh, this is taking place in 1953 or 1955 or 2019. It is taking place now again. And why was it such a revolutionary play? Why was it a watershed? What did it do for theatre that liberated people like Tom Stoppard and, and people that came afterwards? Why was it so important? Well, you could say a lot of things about that. But again, it was the use of symbolic movement and language and characters to trace some major questions about human existence. And that's why, I think, is because it traces those questions. It does not give you an answer, but it stirs up questions. It's, it's a difficult play to watch because of this lack of plot. And I think I kind of compare it to how when we listen to Western music, at least, we subconsciously are always seeking a beat. We're looking for a 4-4 time or a 7-4 time, but we have this sense of a beat that's coming. And when we what, go to theatre... As a, we, we expect to see a plot, we expect to feel it roll out. And when there isn't a plot, then there's not really a, an internal resolution to the viewer or the listener. And, and so there's kind of this unresolved tension. So it, I understand why people walked out when they first saw it, because it is very confusing. And you think this is just going round in circles, and it's yes. not going to get any better. So what advice would you give somebody who is seeing the play for the first time? Well, come in and relax and experience it, I think, is the best way to go about it. Um, I mean, you will find yourself trying to understand and trying to figure things out, but don't feel bad if you can't. Or you will get certain insights and then certain other insights, and then you will start to see how things do repeat themselves and why that does matter and where it's taking you. But, you know, for instance, this play has often been done in prisons, and the prisoners love it because they understand what it is to wait and that their tensions are never resolved. I think I read somewhere that early on in the 50s, Beckett had met somebody who had been incarcerated and the, that person who had been in prison had performed the play, it had changed his life, and then he and Beckett had become friends later on. So it, it had had a great resonance to the person who had been incarcerated, maybe yes. for that reason of waiting. Right. What I think is also interesting is that Beckett, even though he was Irish and English was his first language, he moved to France uh, after he'd been at Trinity College and he wrote Waiting for Godot in French. Yes. Um, and, then, and then he himself translated it right. back into English. And the, the French title of the play is En attendant Godot, or While Waiting for Absolutely, Godot. Yes. And that completely changes, that adverb changes the focus. And so for me, I feel like the French version of While Waiting for Godot is a, is a truer definition of the play in that it's, it's about things that we do while we're waiting. Yes. When you take the while away and you say waiting for Godot, it's pushing the audience to there's an end point here. There's a resolution that I'm looking for, which adds to the frustration. Whereas if it's just whilst waiting, um, then it alters your feeling about the play. I agree. I, I would like to see the the English version called While Waiting for Godot, too. But um, one of the things I find interesting about Beckett as a playwright is he said he wrote it in French because he wanted the constraint of working in 
a language that is not his native language, that that forced him to concentrate more on the form. And it made it maybe a little bit more colloquial. I I lived in Sweden for Mm -hmm. uh, my degree in Swedish, and I I was never the same person in Swedish. I never had access to the same vocabulary, so I tended to use more colloquial language, more, Mm -hmm. you know, words of the street rather than academic words or higher falutin words. And so I think maybe that's, I, I can understand what he's saying, that when you're working in a, in a second language, yes. you don't have access to higher ideas maybe in the same, or the same way. You have to describe them differently yes. and it makes it feel more of the people. Well, he certainly, uh, I mean, this play has high language and very low language. <laughs> I mean, it's a mixture right. of, and uh, and a mixture of contradictions of all sorts, comedy and tragedy, the, the rude language of the people, the rudest language of the people, and the things they do while waiting can include, you know, burping. and um, <laughs> Bodily functions. Yes, other, other such functions, <laughs> but also can include talking about um, the two thieves who were on who were crucified along with Jesus. There's a lot of religion in this play too, which is not necessarily to say that Godot means God. Right. I think I think that Beckett was quite clear about that, that if people wanted to read God into it, he said, you know, I'm aware of Christian mythology, so obviously yeah. I'm going to use it. But it really wasn't he wasn't interpreting Godot as God. No. And he was fascinated with words that began G O D. And so he has there's a list of words in French that begin G O D, all yes. of which have some link to the play, hobnail boots or, yes. or drunks or um, erections or all sorts right. of things <laughs> that in French the slang words begin G-O-D and that was kind of part of his fascination. Yes. Um, but obviously he knew that people were going to interpret Godot as God and yes. some people may choose to view it that way and to uh, experience it that way. But there are, there are lots of other variations between the French and the English versions. The English is slightly shorter. He took certain passages out. Yes. Certain things are maybe more sensuous in French and more trim or technical in English. So it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And I think he carried on changing it all his life. Right? He did. Um, I was very interested in the, in the two productions that he himself directed, one at the Schiller uh, Theater and one at uh, San Quentin. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did. He made a lot of changes. He said the one of the early, the first director, French director Roger Blin, had said that um, he'd asked Beckett who would be uh, his dream cast for Waiting for Godot, and he said that it would be Charlie Chaplin for yes. Vladimir, Buster Keaton for Estragon, and Charles Lawton for Pozo. So when you're looking for an actor for your production, yes. how are you? What are you? What considerations are you taking into account when you're choosing the actors? Because there's some very physical ideas right. that uh, Becca Well, I had. have a movement coach for the production, and she has been absolutely essential. And she was at auditions with me, and she uh, taught some movement things. I mean, these tramps are also, they are vaudevillians, and they do a lot of vaudeville acts during the play. The play is very funny. You may not find it boring because it's so funny. If you're not trying to figure it out, you may just enjoy it and laugh. Uh, some of the actors who've been in it have said, 
oh, when I first read this, I, I just thought it was a comedy. I didn't think about all of these deep philosophical underpinnings. So um, what do I what do I looked for people who could do the, that kind of comedy. I looked for people who I thought were going to understand enough of the play to perform it. I was very fortunate uh, that I had a lot of good people auditioning. Our actor who plays Vladimir has just been accepted into the Yale Drama School for his graduate work. He's Wonderful. a graduating senior. So we are delighted to have him doing that role. And we have a new graduate student, master student, who's playing Gogo. I didn't necessarily look for a Charles Lawton type um, for Pazzo. Roger Blanc uh, himself played Pazzo in the French mm-hmm. version in addition to directing it. I speak French, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so that's why I'm going, Roger Blanc. Um, but Not anyway. Roger Blanc. Roger Blanc. Roger Blanc, okay. yeah. Um, but I was looking for people who I thought could do these characters and who could do the comic movement. It is a very physical play. Very. I mean, obviously, in all plays, whatever you're producing, good actors make or break a play. Oh, but yes. in this one, it seems that the actors really need to carry it. It's really yes. the success is really down to them rather than the words right. they're saying. Right. That very physical uh, right. style of acting. Right. And, you know, Vladimir is supposed to be tall and skinny, is it? And, and, and Estragon and Gogo is supposed to be more stocky. Did you? And short. And short? Not exactly. My, my Vladimir is taller than my Estragon, <laughs> um, but he's not necessarily skinny. And I didn't have that uh, wide a range of actors. Um, I cast a tall and skinny Lucky, which is how I've always seen that role. Right. Um, so I have my tall and skinny guy, but he's not playing Vladimir. He's playing Lucky. <laughs> um, and I ended up having to recast my Pazzo for various reasons. So I went with the person I was really torn. I had two actors I was thinking of for Pazzo, and I was torn. I cast one of them. I ended up going back and casting the other one. Is this a, is this a bucket list performance for many actors, or is it kind of a rite of passage? Oh, I think it's a rite of passage. Um, I don't know that everybody, that all actors, especially young actors, really know the play. But if they do, then it's in their bucket list, I'm sure. (laughs) Beckett objected to most interpretive approaches to his play, and he was very much against the idea of women being in the play. In fact, he brought a lawsuit against the Dutch theatre company in the late 1980s, which had used all female actors. Um, His comment was, women don't have prostates, um, because Vladimir has to leave the stage to urinate frequently. So... Um, What are your thoughts on respecting Beckett's wishes or a playwright's wishes versus offering equal opportunities to all actors? Would you cast women in those roles? I would not, um, but not because of equal opportunity. Um, Because there were people, I mean, I took advanced directing in graduate school, and we talked about how women in these roles make the play seem too fertile. Um, and it's definitely a play about impotent men. Is it? Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, you, you, you don't necessarily know that, um, and it, it doesn't have to. But it's, it's not a play about a couple that is fertile and that have children that will follow them. And it, you're, it's not necessarily. I mean, some people think they're a, a gay couple. Some people don't. It's up to the interpretation. But it's about people who are not who are not populating the earth. It's about people who are growing old and getting ready to leave the earth. 
besides uh, Vladimir and Estragon, halfway through the first act, we meet two more people. We meet Patso and Lucky. Lucky. Right. Tell us about them and and what you feel they add to the to the journey that Vladimir and Estragon are on. Well, again, you read different interpretations and you get all sorts of ideas about who they are and what they add to the journey. Patso is presumably, and that's a presumably one of these uncertainty things, a wealthy man who owns a lot of land in the neighborhood, including the land that they're meeting on, and who is very egotistical and who wants everyone to adore him especially these two traps that he meets. He, he, he wants them to think he is amazing. He is Pazzo. And Lucky is his servant, his slave, really, who he has roped to him. And Lucky carries his suitcase and his picnic basket and his stool and his whip. He has a whip. He's a very strong character we think. He turns out to be a little less strong and a little more insecure than we imagined. In the second act, he has gone blind and Lucky has gone um, mute. In the first act, Lucky does this, is told to think, and he does this eight-minute long speech um, in which he's thinking in ways that you think you can't understand the play. Incoherently, yes. Incoherently. <laughs> I mean, there's, again, if you if you really study it, there's stuff there. Right. But, in fact, Beckett told his actors, if you, if you study Lucky's speech, so the whole play is there. It's in that speech. Right. So, you know, who's the, who's the master? Who's the slave? Where is the power? Those are questions that are brought in strongly by... Lucky and Pazzo, but they also can be asked of Didi and Gogo. And what is the significance of in Act Two when Pozo and uh, Pazzo and Lucky come back that Pazzo is blind and Lucky is mute? What, how is that? How does that transform the relationship with uh, Vladimir and Estragon? Well, now Vladimir and Estragon have the power because Pazzo and Lucky fall down and can't get up and need their help in getting up, and they're. Didi and Gogo are thinking, well, do we want to help them or don't we? Do we want them to give us something in order to help them? Yada, yada, yada. But the other thing I find very interesting, and again, this is somebody else's interpretation that I went, ah, that's important, <laughs> is that in the second act, Pazzo has become the tragic hero, like Oedipus, who goes blind and who has totally changed character and who... He still tries to, bo- I mean, he still bosses Lucky around, but isn't he more dependent on Lucky now than he was in the first act? Yes, he is. He does not, and he even says, Didi asks him, Vladimir asks him, well, where are you going now? And he says, basically, who knows? Why do I care? Like Oedipus, he has given up control over his own life, and he now sees himself as the tragic hero who is the victim of fate. Everybody in the play is going nowhere. Yes. I know Beckett had wanted to avoid definition for the play. He said that the play was a way of giving artistic expression to, quote, the irrational state of unknowingness wherein we exist, this mental weightlessness which is beyond reason. Well, yes. What do we... Again, it depends on your religious 
beliefs, but what do we, if you're not religious, what do we really know about the meaning of human life? Do we have any clue as to what we're here for, individually or as a species? I think Beckett would say, we don't. We don't know what we're here for. We don't know what our life means. We're just here, bumping around, trying to figure it out. But we're egotistical enough that we think it should have meaning. Yes, we do. <laughs> right. So if you try to recount the play, it's a little bit like trying to tell somebody a dream that you've had. It doesn't yes. really make any sense. When you've seen it or produced it or been in, directed it in the past, how have audiences reacted? Do people leave at, heart, at intermission or do people nowadays, because it's so famous, tend to sit until the end? Well, I've never been in it, and I, this is the first time I've directed it. I usually don't direct a play more than once because for me directing is an adventure and a, uh, a journey into the unknown, and this, <laughs> this one certainly is. But no, I don't see lots of people leaving. Um, I see people who at least know that it's a famous play and they should stay there and, and <laughs> see it. But um, no, I have not seen lots of people leaving, not at all. Well, that's good. That's, I think times have, times have moved on yes. since it was first performed in the 1950s. So Waiting for Godot opens at MU's Theatre Department Studio 4, which is in the old McKee Gymnasium on Hit Street, and it opens next Wednesday yes. for a five-performance run. E- evening performances start at 7.30, yes. plus there's a final 2pm matinee performance on Sunday right. the 17th. Tickets are $16 and can be purchased online at theatre.missouri.edu or at the box office by calling 573-882-PLAY, which is 882-7529. The box office is open from 2 till 5, Monday to Friday, and one hour before showtime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm told the tickets are going fast, so you might want to. It is a very famous play. And in fact, uh, Elizabeth Brunton Palmieri has just walked in. Who did perform uh, or direct Waiting for Godot last year or two years ago? Uh, a couple years ago, my baby was brand new. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and it was an amazing performance. I really enjoyed it. So I'm interested to come and see Waiting for Godot again Great. and see two, four, five different actors performing it. So mm-hmm. Suzanne Bourgoyne, thank you so much for coming in to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you, Diana. I'll see you again me. soon. <laughs> and now on to our second guest. For those immersed in the theatre world of Columbia, Elizabeth Brown Palmieri needs only a cursory introduction. Founder and executive director of Greenhouse Theatre Project, she is an actor, director, writer, adapter and theatre educator whose productions pop up all over Columbia. The company's next series, which open next weekend, are The Living Room One Acts. Welcome back to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you, Diana. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to see you. <laughs> so this is the ninth season, I believe, for Greenhouse Theatre. Congratulations, is that right? Is it the ninth? Or is it the, t- the 2011, was it? I guess 11, the eighth. 12, 13, well, 14, yes, theatre seasons run differently, though. They kind oh. of run, you know, so this is, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, did I miss a year? Because I probably did. <laughs> the last couple of years have been kind of a whirlwind. So <laughs> I don't. I, have no, I I actually forget how old I am all the time. I'm, I'm always asking my husband. So um, I think it's the eighth season. Okay. <laughs> but I wait. Is it now? I'm gonna like retract everything. I know I'd asked you what the first year was, and you said 2011. But yes. it only started at the it end was, of the year. Right. It was a it Christmas was, show at the Art League. Exactly. That was our first show. So technically, we counted um, the first season being twelve. Uh, yep, eleven slash twelve. So okay. Yeah. So here we are. This is the eighth season. <laughs> <laughs> Greenhouse Theatre. Oh, still 
a lot. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> and since the outset, your goal has been to offer innovative theatre in unexpected places. Mm-hmm. And people's private living rooms are definitely <laughs> unexpected places. So what was the inspiration for the living room series? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the seed uh, was planted. I, I guess, um, you know, being site-specific, we are always performing in, you know, non-traditional spaces anyway. And we are an intimate theater company. You know, the, the audience is always kind of up close and personal, sometimes even involved, you know, in, in the shows. And so to me, it was kind of like, you know, what what's the, the natural next step was just like, you know, let's get cozy now. Like, literally, let's be cozy together. So um, in New York, they've been, you know, doing something for a while along the lines of this. It's kind of like in, in the music world, it's like a house show, you know, it's, it's pr- very common to just like uh, gather people in a house, charge, you know, a little bit at the door and um, and have a performance. And so um, they've been doing that with uh, theater in, in New York for a long time, mainly because space is an issue, um, costs a lot of money, uh, blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of new work, you know, being generated. And so people need a space. They need a stage. They need a place to... Um, to expose that. So anyway, the living room one acts though last year um, it was a test run for it and we just tried it out. We did it over two nights in two different houses and you know it was just a test to see how comfortable people are showing up you know at a complete stranger's house and um, and it turned out to be a, a success. So we thought okay we're going to add this to the season. Um, last year we did um, a, a piece that you know had, had been written back in, I think it was written in the early 80s, and it was pretty heavy, pretty dark piece. We didn't um, we didn't release the name, the title of it, or anything. We, we wanted people to just kind of come and, and not quite know what to expect, which is, you know, what we usually like anyway. But um, this year I tried to do something different. I did a, a call out for new work, and I gave people kind of like a two-month window of time um, to write something, because I wanted it to be really fresh. I wanted it to be something that wasn't, you know, like something that someone pulled out and dusted off from 20 years ago that they worked on. I wanted it to be relevant. And so, uh, lo and behold, I, I had many, um, many people, you know, brave enough to show me their work and um, from all over the country, too, which was really exciting. So when I got back from um, my trip, I was abroad earlier this year, I kind of dove into all these one acts. And the two that I selected are, they're both, I would say, dark comedies. They are relevant what i thought was really interesting and maybe i'm you know maybe this was maybe they were trying to pander to me or something but the characters in both of these one acts are all in their 30s you know and they're dealing with um the issues that people in like mid late 30s are dealing with when that comes to like online dating or you know just just a lot of these you know uh, um going back to old flames you know after after your marriage has fallen apart or different things like that you know there was just like a lot of relevancies to um my generation and so that's kind of why you know i i guess i is why i selected these two because they personally spoke to me and because i was the one who's getting <laughs> to pick them so it's like okay but i love them and and the thing the thing too is that I'm not directing either of these. I'm actually performing in both of them, which is really, really nice for me because if you know Greenhouse, you know that oftentimes I am performing and um, directing or co-directing and producing and kind of like running the show. And so um, it's a very small, small organization. And um, 
small but mighty uh but uh yeah so i i brought on two awesome directors we have jason stanley directing uh the first one act which is bumbling around the psychiatric couch and the second um one act is uh, return of the grievous angel which david wilson of true false fame is going to be directing and and these playwrights are actually uh graham ojala barber who uh, who wrote Bumbling Around the Psychiatric Couch. He's actually based in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, um, and he's an immigration lawyer, He right? is an immigration attorney. Yeah, he's an immigration lawyer. And he's actually kind of a blast from my past because we... Old um, flame? Well, not an old flame. Not quite. Uh, <laughs> he... Um, <laughs> did you just make me blush? Um <laughs> He was very cute, you know, when we were all growing up. I think all the girls had a crush on him. But um, aside from that, uh, he is actually going to come down, too, and, and be here next weekend for the show, which is really fun. But, um, yeah, he turned it in, you know, I, and all of a sudden I saw that name show up in my, my inbox, and I was just like, what? This is great. I, we run into each other every now and then when I'm home visiting and stuff like that. So so that was really exciting. He's he's a very talented writer, and, um, and I, you know, I'm just excited to... To take on one of his works, and then um, the second piece is actually written by a husband and wife duo based in Columbia. That is uh, Stephen Erica Woods, and so um, that's kind of cool too to see the the, the co writing partnership that um, that went into creating this Return of the Grievous Angel, which is also the name of, of a song. If uh, if you all are you know a Parsons song, no, okay, some of you know it. Google it. <laughs> Maybe I'm too old. No. No, you're not too. No, you're not too young. It's like, like, yeah, you're probably too young. (laughs) We're all too young, Diana. We're all too young. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, and the criteria was when I put it out there to the playwrights, it was, you know, the piece needs to just involve a couch and no more than two performers. That's it. And the rest, you'll have to come and check it out next weekend. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Elizabeth Brown-Palmieri, the director, executive director of Greenhouse Theatre Project, about the Living Room One Act series, which is coming up next weekend, and which take place over three nights in three different people's, local people's living rooms. So there have to be some challenges with performing in such a compact space, mm-hmm. especially for a troupe like Greenhouse, which employs a lot of physicality in mm-hmm. their performances. Mm-hmm. So how do you integrate your needs as a performer with these really tight, limited spaces that you have? Is that a challenge? Yeah, you know, the, the thing that I love about the Living Room One Acts is they are actually a little different than the traditional greenhouse shows. Um, they are more focused on the dialogue. They are more focused on the small little um, expressions as opposed to, you know, the grandiose physicality that we normally love. And, and I kind of love that because it's almost like a meditation for me. It's like these pieces are like, you know, can go a little bit more inward um you really the you really listen to the words you know what i mean and um and they're going to be so close that uh you know everything is kind of exposed and so yeah we won't be moving around a ton with these it's more about um the relationships that are taking place that are unfolding in front of you um in these two pieces and uh and they're really interesting you know and they're and they're short and that's the lovely thing about one x you know they're like 20 25 minutes long and so you really kind of like grabs you and holds you hopefully and then releases you and then you can 
have a drink and chat about it, you know. So we are performing these back to back. There will be an intermission in between and we will have bevies for people and and people can, you know, just take over these these lovely houses. And I do want to just throw the addresses out there because there were a couple little typos on the poster. Not not huge ordeals, but next weekend uh, on Friday the 15th will be at 4308 Glen Eagle Drive. And on Saturday the 16th will be 800 North Valley View Drive. And on Sunday the 17th, it'll be at 2417 Beach View Drive. And all performances are at 7.30 p.m., um, tickets are for sale on our website online, and they're going fast because this is even slightly, you know, more intimate than than the usual. So you know, if you've been to a greenhouse show, that we usually can only accommodate somewhere between sixty and eighty people at each show, and this is even a little bit less than that. So how so. many places are there each night? About thirty. There's fifty. Okay. Yeah. We're pushing it. <laughs> but you know what? Last year when we did it, and you you were there one of the nights, um, we had about 50 uh, each night in those houses. And, it, you know, it did it seem crazy tight? It yes. <laughs> and people are sitting on the floor. I mean, it's not, they, you know, if there's a seat there, then you can sit on the seat. But there right. was standing room, there were people sitting on the floor. So it's really just kind of grab whatever space you can, right, right. make yourself comfortable, yeah. and then just settle in and it's watch what's coming. Gorilla audience fair. Yeah. So it's not really the kind of event that you just turn up and pay on the door. You really need to buy a ticket in advance. Yeah, you need to buy a ticket. You know, last year I, I was very casual about it because I it was a test. You know, I said, so it was the first piece that we were doing kind of like this where I, I said um, you don't have to buy tickets in advance just show up and it's a suggested donation of $10 at the door and um, you know and then I had a lot of people tech there you know email me anyway saying you know I, can I make a reservation they were really stressed out about making a reservation I said no just show up and I then you know about the day before we, we opened it I was like oh crap you know what if we only have 10 one night and you know 300 the next night you know but fortunately somehow it like worked out perfectly and we had about 50 each night so um so yeah so we're gonna we're gonna just you know this time around we're we're treating it a little bit more um a a little bit more like a you know a full-length show and so we're selling the tickets and everything and and there are just so many spaces so last year i i was at the performances Mm -hmm. and it was very intense it was one set in boston yes Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of screaming at each other mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. a lot of pain there was a lot of mm-hmm. you know tears mm-hmm. and you know you're, you're right there I was you know three feet right. from the action right. and at the end of it when you have exhausted yourself as an actor mm-hmm. you don't really have as an actor you don't really have any space to go to and I think that must be very difficult to let the character go when you're yeah. surrounded by the audience yeah. that you have seen you don't have a kind of a you probably have a bedroom you can go and change in but the audience particularly in Colombia they expect to see the actors straight afterwards and say oh that was awesome thank you so much yeah and you must be in kind of a character shock still at that point a piece like that that we did last year that was it had to deal with rape and a relationship between a brother and sister that uh, he did not rape her but it was something you know that had happened in the past and that was still affecting them both in their adulthood and yeah it was it was incredibly intense and painful and i don't think people knew what was about to hit him when we when we went into it i didn't no i know no one did you know and as the actors uh, there's something you know just really there is something really emotionally 
for lack of a better word, magical, you know, that takes place in that kind of um, energetic space when you are giving, you know, giving your all to tell this story. And um, and I really did feel the love, you know, in those rooms last last year. It was intense. You know, you could you could hear like the audible gasps and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, no, at the end, there is no curtain and there is no, you know, controlling of lights per se, because we're using lamps and whatever is available in the house. And so we really just, you know, it, it ends and you have to have that kind of invisible break for yourself. And, and you know, and then it, that is hard, you know, delivering a performance like that and giving yourself 10 minutes to change and then having to come out and, and talk to people. It's um, it's something that uh, it's it's difficult. You know what I mean? It's difficult to kind of make that make that shift. These shows, we are not scr- screaming in them um not too much anyway and like i said you know they're they're a little bit lighter they're they're lighter much lighter than last year's and um and and relevant to i think well like i said to my to my uh generation but um yeah i'm I'm having a lot of fun i'm having a lot of fun with these pieces the next couple shows the greenhouse is doing this year our season is pretty intense And so this is, if you're looking for something light, this would be your opportunity because it's just going to get darker from here on out. (laughs) It's a good way in, like an intro into Exactly, exactly. If you've got like a date night and you don't know the person super well, take them to this show, maybe, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've seen you in many plays, some of which you wrote yourself, others which you adapted to Mm -hmm. fit the greenhouse format, Mm -hmm. some of which have comedic elements, Mm -hmm. but I don't think of you as a comedic actress, I think of you as a dramatic actor, sorry, should yeah. say actress, actor. So what are the different challenges when you're suddenly playing a more comedic role? Is that hard for you or is it really You know what's funny is I grew fun. up always playing comedic roles. That's what I always was. It wasn't until I went to college and I had a director who turned out to be my mentor who took a chance on me and he gave me an incredibly massive, heavy role um, in Caucasian Chalk Circle. I was playing Grushevaknadza and he made me, it was winter in Minnesota and he made me in that January every day backpack with a big heavy pack on my back and go into the woods to learn my lines because this woman was on a journey in the in the piece and that that show really kind of broke me and it broke me in and it was my first like true dramatic role and it was I mean once I got a taste of that it was you know I couldn't look back but I I do say about actors in general if you can if you can do comedy as an actor you can do anything Comedy is, is is hard, but it's also for me it's freeing. I actually really love love doing comedy. Um, like you said, like when I kind of sprinkle it into to shows, whether it was like Pear Gint or even even a Christmas Carol, you know those moments. Um, they're really they're really lovely. But my favorite thing to do is to go back and forth, you know, in a piece, is to be able to like uh, give you all those elements within one within one production. It doesn't always happen, but. But yeah, no, you know, I actually I don't find comedy hard because, like I said, it's just it's really freeing for me. But you know what else is freeing for me is like crying on stage. I love (laughs) I love when I get to I I feel like I have like the luckiest job ever because I get to fall in love and I get to die all the time, you know, on stage. And I feel like that's my therapy. So. (laughs) 
So as well as being an actor, director and playwright for Greenhouse Theatre, mm. you are also the executive director. So I thought, as I have you here today during mm. our Pledge Drive Week, that we'd take a little time to talk about fundraising in the arts mm. and the importance of what both Greenhouse and KOPN do in providing voices, an outlet for the community. Mm. So we both rely heavily on community giving. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when you are passionate about something, as we both are by our nature uh, and our roles, it's tough to ask people to give. Mm-hmm. So as an actor, can you improv your way through that? When you're going to do an ask, can you can you think of yourself as an actor doing that or... or is it easier to ask as Elizabeth? You know what's funny is no matter how much preparation I allow myself before I go into a situation, whether I'm having a big fundraiser and I have to go up and like you know welcome everyone, or if I'm going in on a one-on-one to ask someone personally for money, no matter how much I think about it beforehand, it really I, I have to just kind of let whatever comes out of me, you know, in that moment out of my heart, um, because I am passionate about this. I you know, and people who have access to community radio. And to be able to hear that I was listening to um, you talk earlier to Suzanne about waiting for Godot. And these are just like really interesting topics, you know, things that um, we're not talking about in in our workplace every day and stuff like that. And so to just be, I mean, art in general, what would we do without it? You know what I mean? In whatever format it comes in, it's it's really what gives us uh, a moment of pause and reprieve. And it gives us that time and space to um, to learn and reflect and you know and connect ourselves in our own worlds and our own lives to to what we're learning about what we're hearing about um so it's incredibly important every place i've lived in this country um whether it was vermont or new york or minnesota or whatever uh i was always you know the first thing in the morning is turning on the uh the local community radio station and and hearing what's going on mainly i listen to it for the arts i don't really care about you know (laughs) anything else the football. <laughs> yeah the football i listen for the football and the arts that would be amazing i know nothing about football but um but yeah it's just i mean people and the people who give i, I think that then you feel connected you know you feel like you are a part of of that organization you feel like you know and it's and so ownership. true you have yeah. ownership and that's what we want you know what i mean because that's the only way that organizations like ours can sustain is if we give a piece of that to everyone else, you know what I mean? And you feel, you know, this isn't mine. Greenhouse isn't mine. I I do it because it's what connects me to the community. And that's what's important to me. Yeah, it it is about that personal connection and about feeling like you're kind of part of the gang. You're part of their family. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's been, I have uh, have just joined the Greenhouse Theatre board. This is this was a huge so win for Greenhouse having Diana Moxon on our board. That's a great win Just for me to be asked to be on the board. Oh, but shucks. it is so exciting. No, I've watched you for so many years, and I've uh, made donations, and I've come to the plays, and now, and I've always felt part of the family because mm-hmm. I think that's that's the spirit that you generate. These are small, intimate performances. You see people that you know there. You have this community kind of combined experience, mm-hmm. and now I get to be really part of the 
inner family mm-hmm. and it's so exciting <laughs> I, I love it and, and I love what we do here on the radio too and it feels very intimate I never have any idea like how many people are listening mm-hmm. but I always feel like you know I'm just kind of talking to one person and it's you yeah that's <laughs> so intimate <laughs> so I always feel like you know when when we come to ask for uh, money that I have a tendency to bumble around the houses so I'd say you know if I'm calling up I'd say hey Elizabeth like I loved your last play how's your daughter doing and Will has his new business going is it going great Mm -hmm. are you travelling much this year you know we put off what we want to ask and then we get to like you know so you know I've been volunteering for KOPN for about a year now and uh, yeah yeah oh yeah I have a radio show oh Oh, you haven't? Oh, well, it's okay. You know, I know you're really busy and you'll probably get around to listening to it sooner or later. And, well, anyway, it's Pledge Drive Week and I wondered, you know, and well, I know you're, you know, you're probably strapped for cash and, you know, family and everything. And, uh, um, well, I just wondered if, you know, oh, oh, that's fine. No, 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 no. Give me a call back when, whenever you're very free. Yeah, yeah. Let's get a coffee sometime. Bye. You know, it's like a yeah. giant fail. Yeah. As opposed to, why is it so hard not to just say, Hey, Elizabeth, I know you're super busy, so this is going to be quick. I'm doing something really important for our community, your community, not only the one you live in, but also the one in which you work. I present an in-depth weekly exploration of events that are happening in the arts, and I would love your support. So here's what I'm asking for. A $60 donation. Or if that's a tough call, as a lump sum, we'll set up a monthly $5 donation, which is about the same as a cup of coffee. Honestly, that would make a big difference and keep speaking of the arts on the air. So I'll take your details now. Have you got your credit card there? Like, why can't I say that? Why can't we just say God, that? God, you're amazing. You should go into, you should be a saleswoman. Elizabeth is Add. writing a check right now. <laughs> I just gave her a check. So she can... <laughs> So that is my ask. I'll give you you your check back. And then we can just keep (laughs) passing it back and forth. (laughs) It's a a bit. (laughs) It's a radio bit. You guys can't see it. (laughs) But you can imagine it. It's all about imagination and radio. So that is my ask of you, listener, too. Yes, you right there on the other side of the wireless speaker. Maybe you're listening while you're in the car or in the kitchen or in your studio, or tip-tapping away on your laptop as you listen with one ear. I really, really love bringing you this program every week. I love being able to talk to people like Elizabeth and Suzanne, professors of theatre and playwrights, authors, musicians, festival organisers, visual artists. It is such a delight having the chance to ask the inside baseball questions, to find out about character motivations and the challenges of organising major events. And I really hope that it's interesting to you as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the Arts is the only, the only radio show in Colombia where you can hear these detailed, longer-form interviews every week. And that counts for something, right? Mm-hmm. So before the day moves along and distractions come at you from all angles, make a call and become a friend of the show. I, I really never have any idea how many people are listening online or on the radio but i imagine it's just me and you plus the person or the people that are in the studio and every week we get to have this chat and share a laugh and marvel at the arts we get to enjoy in our community so friend make that call 573-874-5676 or go online to kopn.org and pledge securely and thank you I really want to carry on creating this show for you. And with your help, I can do it. 
0800-874-5676. Elizabeth, once again, give us the web address for Greenhouse Theatre and how people can get tickets. www.greenhousetp.org or look us up on Facebook. Let's see, we're on Instagram. We're on all those things. I don't do Twitter, though. I mean, I just can't it's do everything. Much. It's just too much. You know, I was thinking, though, we should have a podcast sometime. That would be fun. Let's think about okay, that. Let's do it. The Greenhouse okay. Theatre podcast. Well, it doesn't have to just be Greenhouse Theatre. It could just be, be, about, be about the process of, of art. And the inside baseball questions. Like, how, exactly. how is it funded? We should just call it inside baseball. Inside, <laughs> behind really the curtain. Confuse people. <laughs> inside baseball behind the curtain. <laughs> so if you'd like to hear that podcast, make a donation. <laughs> If you'd like to fund our podcast, <laughs> please call. Elizabeth, thank you so very much. Thank I am you. excited to come and see the Living Room One Act next weekend. Um, and I hope everybody else is too. Yay. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take our usual whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are coming up over the next seven days, starting with today. At Talking Horse Theatre, Pace Youth Theatre are performing two one-act comedies, The Audition and Bad Auditions by Bad Actors. Nothing that we know about here. Uh, we all know about good actors. The show is on tonight and tomorrow at 7pm, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Como Africa Fest 2019, The Power and Promise of Women, is a one-night-only celebration of Africa on tonight at the Missouri Theatre. The doors open at 6pm with a chance to see the sculptures of Nigerian artist Reki Bashoran. The main show starts at 7 and features the Ayodeli all-female drum and dance group from Chicago, vocalists Ina Cook from Madagascar and Colombia's own Simone Sparks, the Redeem Christian Church Choir, plus the Maiden Africa dancers from Mizzou, as well as some speakers. The evening is presented by Jabberwocky Studios and the Mizzou African Graduate and Professional Student Association, and tickets are $12 for an individual or $20 for two or more. So that's a kind of family ticket. And you can buy tickets on the door. Tomorrow evening at Jesse Hall, the Global Showcase will celebrate cultural diversity and feature a variety of entertainers from both the Mizzou campus and the Columbia community. This is a free event. It's open to all and it starts at 6 p.m. And there's a big night at Rose Music Hall tomorrow night when multiple local bands get a chance to secure a spot at the Summer Camp Music Festival taking place in Chillicothe, Illinois over Memorial Day weekend. The organisers of the festival are in town this Saturday to see what Como has to offer. And the lineup includes the Barroom Billies, Cat Daddy's Funky Fuzz Bunker Band, Crooked Fix, Dumpster Kitty and Loose Loose. Mike Hagan is laughing at my English accent saying Cat Daddy's Funky Fuzz Bunker Band. Dumpster Kitty. <laughs> Dumpster Kitty. Um, their show starts at eight. Tickets $6 and your local band needs your support because there will be voting. So if you have a favourite local band and you want to go along and support them, that's on at Rose Music Hall tomorrow night. Sunday afternoon at 12.30, the MU School of Music presents the clarinet and saxophone ensembles in the European Gallery at the Museum of Art and Archaeology. This is also a free concert and open to everybody. At the Boone History and Culture Centre, there is an ice cream and cake reception for their current art exhibit, which is called The Map of the Invisible, playing with colour and movement, which features work by local artist Gladys Swan. And that reception is from one till three, and it's also free and open to all. On Sunday at 3.30 and 7, the We Always Swing Jazz Series presents the Benny Green Trio with vocalist Veronica Swift, and that'll be at Murray's. At First Baptist Church, the Mizzou New Music 2019 Missouri Composers Project will hold a free concert at 7.30. And at Steve 
Stevens College, there's a performance of the Great American Songbook in the Kimball Ballroom, Leela Rennywood Hall, and that's at 7.30. Monday evening, the Boone History and Culture Centre's Blind Boone Piano Series continues on Monday evening with Margaret Bianchetta and Bags Fly Free, an evening of vocal and instrumental jazz featuring Tom Andes, Mary D. Brown, Vicky Ray, and Lisa Rose. Their show starts at 7 o'clock and tickets are 20 for adults and 10 for children. On Tuesday night, the Stable Boys are back with their long-form improv at Talking Horse Theatre for their one-year birthday extravaganza, and they have roped me into being a guest. So I will be joining the Stable Boys on yeah. Tuesday. Yes! Oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm simply the guest monologist. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, okay. <laughs> I, refi- I still want to see that. <laughs> I refused any any other involvement. The maybe better than average Bake Off show starts at seven thirty, and tickets are ten dollars. It's always hilarious, and it pretty much always sells out. So, um, if you want to get tickets for that, head to Talking Horse Theatre uh, website. Wednesday evening next week is opening night for the University of Missouri Theatre Department's production of the Samuel Beckett classic play Waiting for Godot. The production runs from March the thirteenth to seventeenth. That's uh, Wednesday through Sunday, and is at Studio Four on Hit Street. Evening performances start at seven thirty and tickets are $16. At the Daniel Boone Regional Library next Wednesday, native Missouri Ozarka, Maradeth Sisko, which is, uh, she's known for her acting in and music contributions to the Missouri-based film Winter's Bone. She'll be joined by guitarist and vocals, vocalist Linda Stoffel. And it's a free concert. It'll be in the Friends Room from 7 till 8 p.m. Next Thursday, there is a lot going on. Most importantly, it is KOPN's 46th birthday party at the Columbia Hello. Art League <laughs> from 5 30 till 7. This is a fundraising event and tickets start at $60. At the Stevens College Playhouse, it is opening night for their production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. At Orr Street, there is the Big Muddy Art Auction to benefit Missouri River Relief and that starts at 6pm and tickets are $10. And finally, the Columbia College Department of Visual Arts and Music presents Considering Matthew Shepard by Craig Heller-Johnson, an evening of music from the chorus, Columbia's LGBTQQA to Z community choir and the Jane Froman singers. That concert will be at the Launa Auditorium at 7pm and tickets are $10 and you can pay for that on the door. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty Columbia and make a donation.